Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, and I'm here in Oxford, together but apart from my co-host Octavia Bright, whose lovely face I am staring at on a screen right now. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing? Well, I don't know. I'm all right. I'm jacked up on caffeine, and um, I'm a little bit high from spending a few hours in the Rose Garden at Regent's Park earlier today, which was wonderful. But I'm also in my house again and crawling up the walls a little bit. So, you know, it's 50-50, isn't it? But the Rose Garden was amazing. And it was like, oh, walking through these flowers and they're all still out, even though it's autumn. And even though the light was gray, like the colors seemed to glow even brighter. And then the best thing about it was that they all have these amazing names, like Free Spirit and You're Gorgeous and Hello Beautiful. And they're all written on these plaques so you can see which rose is which. So you kind of walk around and you get these really affirming sentences kind of thrown at you. It's very cheesy. <laughs> it is incredibly Our cheesy. rose called Hello Beautiful. Hello Beautiful. Um, there's also, yeah, there's, they're all, there's one called Rock and Roll. I don't know. It's, oh it's, my God. Yeah, it's very cheesy. But it, it, listen, it worked for me. It worked for okay. me today. That's how much I need it. I do like roses. It's nice. Well, you don't have to pretend. I mean, you shut that down. No, I do. I, 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 got, I got very into the roses in our garden this year. How are you? I, yeah, I'm equally kind of confused. I'm very happy to be chatting to you right now. Oh, it's me a too. Good, it's a good activity for the evening. I'm surprised you've had so much caffeine this late in the day. Girl, I don't know what happened to me. I lost it slightly and just, yeah, went for it. Feels great. <laughs> I approve. Um, it's funny. We always put when I write the script of this introduction I always put three big x's to kind of like where we're gonna say how we are and I looked at it today and I was like I feel a bit three big x's right now like not in the adult porn context and not really in the kissing context but in the like a blank script or like yeah some, like <laughs> like moonshine from ah! <laughs> alcohol is bent or something you know I Wait, just Carrie, like, are you high right now god I wish no <laughs> um but I do feel like the clock's going back plus the pandemic plus the upcoming U.S. election which has not happened yet um when we're recording is is making me go a little bit cuckoo and that either manifests as like complete paralysis or slight cuckoo-ness I mean you know I get kind of like giddy in my sadness please just rewind to me standing amongst the cheesy rose names having a <laughs> transcendent moment I completely relate yeah yeah but anyway so that's how I am mm. but the other reason I'm excited is that our guest today is the author Mary Gateskill yeah amazing her masterful long essay, Lost Cat, has just been published in the UK for the first time. It's the story of her lost cat, Gatino, but also a clear-eyed and heartbreaking meditation on who we are allowed to love, how different kinds of suffering are connected, and the hope and pain that love can bring. So inspired by Lost Cat, the theme of today's show is complicated love. What does it mean to love too much or in a way that society doesn't see as appropriate? We'll be looking at complicated love in books from Romeo and Juliet to an Octavia Bright perennial favorite, the Pisces. <laughs> yeah, it's back. <laughs> <laughs> when I thought of this theme, I was like, I think I know a title that might come up. <laughs> I still haven't read it. Really need to. But anyway, first, Octavia, can you introduce Mary, please? I sure can. Mary Gateskill is the author of the story collections Bad Behavior, Because They Wanted To, and Don't Cry, and the novels Two Girls Fat and Thin, Veronica, The Mayor, and This is Pleasure. She's received a Guggenheim Fellowship for her work and has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, Esquire, The Best American Short Stories, and The O. Henry Prize Stories. She lives in New York. So today you'll hear our interview with Mary Gateskill. We'll talk more generally about the ways that love gets complicated in literature. And finally, we will give our usual book recommendations. So come explore love in all its joy and pain for the next hour on Literary Friction. I really went pretty emo there, didn't I? You did, and I love it. <laughs> I'm here for it.
Mary Gateskill, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you. So we've asked you to start with a reading. Do you mind setting it up? Well, okay. There's not much to set up. It's from my um, essay, Lost Cat, which is recently published in the UK. And uh, it covers a lot of material, but I'm just reading from the beginning, which is mostly about the cat. Last year, I lost my cat, Gattino. He was very young, at seven months, barely an adolescent. He's probably dead, but I don't know for certain. Two weeks after he disappeared, people claimed to have seen him. I trusted two of the claims because Gattino was blind in one eye, and both people told me that when they'd caught him in their headlights, only one eye shone back. One guy, who said he saw my cat trying to scavenge from a garbage can, said that he'd looked really thin, like the runt of the litter. The pathetic words struck my heart. But I heard something besides the words, something in the coarse, vibrant tone of the man's voice that immediately made another emotional picture of the cat. Back arched, face afraid but excited, brimming and ready, before he jumped and ran. Tail defiant, tensile and crooked. Afraid, but ready. Startled by a large male, that's how he would have been, even if he was weak with hunger. He had guts, this cat. Gattino disappeared two and a half months after we moved. Our new house is on the outskirts of a college campus near a wildlife preserve. There are wooded areas in all directions, and many homes with decrepit outbuildings sit heavily, darkly low behind trees in thick foliage. I spent hours at a time wandering around calling Gattino. I put food out. I put a trap out. I put hundreds of flyers up. I walked around knocking on doors, asking people if I could look in their shed or under their porch. I contacted all the vets in the area. Every few days, someone would call and say he had seen a cat in a parking lot or behind his dorm. I would go and sometimes glimpse a grizzled adult melting away into the woods or behind a building or under a parked car. After two weeks, there were no more sightings. I caught three feral cats in my trap and let them go. It began to snow. Still searching, I would sometimes see little cat tracks in the snow, near dumpsters full of garbage. I also saw prints made by bobcats or coyotes. When the temperature went below freezing, there was icy rain. I kept looking. A year later, I still had not stopped. Six months after Gattino disappeared, my husband and I were sitting in a restaurant having dinner with some people he had recently met, including an intellectual writer we both admired. The writer had considered buying the house we were living in, and he wanted to know how we liked it. I said it was nice, but that it had been partly spoiled for me by the loss of our cat. I told him the story, and he said, Oh, that was your trauma, was it? I said, Yeah. Yep, it was a trauma. You could say he was pretty unkind, or you could say I was pretty silly. You could say he was priggish, or you could say I was weak. A few weeks earlier, I had an email exchange with my sister Martha on the subject of trauma, or rather tragedy. Our other sister, Jane, had just decided not to euthanize her dying cat because she thought her little girls could not bear it. She didn't think she could bear it. Jane lives in chronic pain so great that sometimes she cannot move normally. She is under great financial stress and is often responsible for the care of her mother-in-law as well as the orphan children of her sister-in-law who died of cancer. But it was her cat's approaching death that made her cry so that her children were frightened. This is awful, said Martha. It is not helping that cat to keep him alive, and it's upsetting her children. It's just prolonging his suffering. It's selfish. Martha is in a lot of pain, too, most of it related to diabetes and fibromyalgia. Her feet hurt so badly she can't walk longer than five minutes. 
She just lost her job and is applying for disability, which, because it has become almost impossible to get, she may not get, and which, if she does get, will not be enough to live on, and we will have to help her. We already have to help her because her COBRA payments are so high that her unemployment isn't enough to cover them. This is painful for her, too. She doesn't want to be the one everybody has to help. And so she tries to help us. She has had cats for years and so knows a lot about them. She wanted to help Jane by giving her advice, and she sent me several emails wondering about the best way to do it. Finally, she forwarded me the message she had sent Jane in which she urged her to put the cat down. When she didn't hear from Jane, she emailed me some more, agonizing over whether or not Jane was angry at her and wondering what decision Jane would make regarding the cat. She said, I'm afraid this is going to turn into an avoidable tragedy. Impatient by then, I told her she should just trust Jane to make the right decision. I said, this is sad, not tragic. Tragedy is thousands of people dying slowly of war and disease, injury and malnutrition. It's Hurricane Katrina. It's the war in Iraq. It's the earthquake in China. It's not one creature dying of old age. After I sent the email, I looked up the word tragic. According to Webster's College Dictionary, I was wrong. Their second definition of the word is, quote, extremely mournful, melancholy, or pathetic, close quote. I emailed Martha and admitted I was wrong, at least technically. I added that I still thought she was being hysterical. She didn't answer me, and maybe she was right not to. Thank you, Mary. It was really wonderful to hear you read that. You've said in other interviews that your process of writing nonfiction is more rational than that of writing fiction, and I was really interested in hearing you describe it like that, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what you mean by that. Well, if, if you've read Lost Cat, especially, that might be, seem a mysterious statement, because in Lost Cat, I talk about a lot of irrational feelings and make some associations that are perhaps not the most rational, like I compare the cat and my father and the cat. And it's not a direct comparison, but I, I, I go over quite smoothly between my feelings for the cat and feelings for my father and um, feelings for the cat and feelings for two children that me and my husband were quite deeply involved with for a period of years and, and just make some leaps, metaphorical leaps that are probably for most people not so rational. But still, how I would still consider that a rational process is that when I told this story, which is based on, which is all true events, what I was doing was describing as clearly as I could and was trying to be as accurate as I could events, real events, real feelings, real thoughts, real conversations between me and real people. Um, so even if I was using metaphors, it's not the same thing as when I'm writing fiction and I might describe a character in sitting and going through their, either sitting in a room or going through their life. And I might have them like look to the side and see a landscape that has nothing to do with the action or the immediate events of the story. That it could be grass, it could be another person who happens to be walking by. I don't in this essay of Lost Cat describe random people. Uh, there's people who come in who are not important. They're not major figures. They're the security guards that talk to me about seeing what they think might have been my cat. Um, strange, various people I might have had conversations with, strange people who claim to be psychic. I would not, in an essay like this, describe how that person looked. Um, if it was a story, I probably would, even if it was only a one-sentence description, because when you're telling a fictional story, you're bringing in, you're, you're embodying a person, a made-up person. And in order to embody them, you're right in the middle of their experience. It's not a retrospective memory as a memoir is, which is technically Lost Cat's a memoir. Um, you're right in the moment with the character. And right in the moment, you're not distant from everything that might be happening, whether it's the you know, grass that you're seeing in front of you, some person who's talking to you, their tone of voice, how they look. Um, a completely irrelevant thing that they might say might snag in your imagination and you might hear that the next day. If a security guard said something that was completely irrelevant, I didn't even, I didn't remember it or when I wrote the essay, it was no longer in my mind. 
what I might have thought when I sat and looked out the window or not even thought, just an impression I would get very intense sometimes of a truck driving by. Uh, It's not relevant to the drive of the rational drive of the story. And so it's just not going to be there. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And one of the things about this essay is that its rational drive is very strong and it feels as a reader anyway, for me, I found reading it, I could, I felt like you were sitting opposite me telling me this story. And yet when you go back to it, the world of ideas and feelings and um, sort of the structure of it it spins out and it's got a whole universe contained within it. Um, And I love the way that it investigates how different experiences of emotion aren't actually isolated, but kind of we have these wells of love and these wells of other kinds of feelings that to me, it, it feels like you're looking at how one love can nudge another love or one loss can nudge another loss but the essay itself is so tight. And I wondered when you were writing it, how you kind of approached the themes that you were going into. Was it something that tumbled along or did you have a lot of structure in mind before you started? I didn't. Um, I actually, it's hard to remember because I wrote it in, I think I started it in 2008 and finished it in 2009. But I do remember that I did not initially intend for it to be anywhere near as long or anywhere near as ambitious. I really intended to just write about the cat because I was so surprised at the breadth and depth of my feeling for having lost this cat. Because I've, I've had cats as an adult all my life just about, and I, I like cats very much. I've loved several cats. But when it comes, when they die, I don't, I'm sad. I might even cry, but not like, not like I felt for this one. And some of it was obviously, it was a kitten and uh, he didn't get to live very long. And plus it was just terribly frustrating to feel that he might be alive out there and suffering and wanting me to find him. It was harder than it would have been if I'd been hit by a car and I could see him and I knew what had happened. So that was part of it. But part of it was, I think it, was mysterious to me. And I think I was hoping to explore that in writing it, but I didn't anticipate how involved it was actually in other things that were happening, most, mostly with my family, um, because my sister at the time was having a kind of a collapse. She'd lost her job. She had no money. And she really has health issues. They both do. But the one who has become unemployed, it was really a crisis which I touched on in the reading, but then also the children that I had been involved with. We, be, we became involved with them in 2002. And at the, it, by, by 2009, eight even, I was beginning to realize that the relationship, while it might be ongoing, was really changing. They were older. Um, they were in their teen years. And I, I couldn't play the same role that I had played. And that was very, that was really hard for me. And I was really fearful of what their lives might be like. And I saw my limits into what I could do to affect their lives. They were also very poor and really disadvantaged um, by any standard. And yet they were strong people. And the gap between those things, between what the, the strength and the integrity I saw in them and what I saw possible for them in the society they lived in and the, the interface between my world and theirs, it was just... It was really, it was wrenching. And that was happening at around the same time. So I think one of the things I realized, because again, a loss of an animal is, is, you know, I I don't underestimate that. Uh, I think it was really snotty of that writer to say, oh, is that your trauma? Because, (laughs) yeah, it can be hard for people to lose animals. But it was also, I realized that a relatively small loss such as that, because it's not the same as losing a child or something, it, a relatively small loss, can you're, you're less defended to it. So when it, when it opens up your heart in a way that can allow these other deeper losses to really be strongly felt. I mean, I, I agree. I think that that writer was very snotty and it made me 
It made me think about how fearful people can be of appearing sentimental, especially people who consider themselves intellectual, which is something that you get at a little in the book, in the essay rather, and how that sentimentality, that's, you know, possibly feared sentimentality often manifests between people and their animals, because as you say, there's less defense and also maybe, I don't know, human beings are so complex in the ways in which they, we can be emotionally shut down and emotionally open, but there's something very simple about the relationship that can develop between a human being and an animal that's dependent on it, which is something that, again, I think you get at very beautifully in the, in the essay. But I wondered, why do you think people are so frightened of appearing sentimental? Um, well, I think it's even worse than that, honestly. I, I mean, I think people uh, scorn sentimentality partly for good reasons, because I think the word sentimental generally suggests something false or, or artificially exaggerated feeling or feeling that's actually rather shallow, but that's being presented as deep. However, I think that sometimes modern people mistake sentiment for sentimentality. I think that feeling itself sometimes that seems, I, I think people have strict ideas about what feeling is excessive and, and what isn't and what is appropriate and what isn't. And I think particularly literary people are quite sensitive to this and I think over guarded about it. Like a lot of times in my writing classes, this is less true than it used to be actually, but but it's, it's still probably true. They're afraid of being too emotional. They're afraid of it being too much or too corny or too, and they try to guard against that by being kind of undercutting the emotion or being a little sarcastic or, or ironic. And uh, are making the characters seem a little harsher than they, I think, have to be, which is sometimes just realistic. It depends on the story you're trying to tell, but it's there's a distrust of just a very overt expression of emotion. One of the things I wanted to ask you about in relation to this essay was that, you know, you've been describing the topics to us and it's very personal stuff in some ways, you know, especially when it when it comes to your relationship with these children and and with your father. And I wonder if you find it difficult to reveal personal things, maybe more or less so than in, in fiction in a different guise. And if you have rules about what you are willing to to talk about publicly in in nonfiction, how do you put up a barrier between you and the rest of the world? And do you do you have concerns about privacy in that way? Well, I should probably have more. Um, <laughs> really, I probably should. Um, I mean, there are things that I wouldn't talk about that I wouldn't even say what they are in this interview because I don't even want to come that close. But it's true that I do talk about things that a lot of people wouldn't talk about and I've sometimes wondered if I've made a mistake, but I remember there are also things that I don't feel, I think maybe I have a somewhat different definition of private than other people, because I remember years ago when I wrote an essay in which I talked about being raped, I didn't describe that, and I didn't spend much time on it, but I remember a woman asking me, how could you talk about something so personal? In, in a, I was speaking in public, and I, I said, I don't consider that personal. Lots of people are raped. How is that personal? I didn't think it was about me. And I, I, mean, I mean that. I, I don't consider simply stating that you have been raped a personal confession. I could have been almost anybody in that instance. I mean, I don't think anybody. I, I think he, he picked me for probably because I looked like a target to him. And he was right. So I don't think it could have been literally anyone, but it could have been hundreds, thousands of people. So I don't consider that personal. You know, what I, I, so in that case, I think I see differently than perhaps a lot of people do. So much of what you're saying in, in, in that answer is about containment and relationship our relationship to what we can and what we can't contain like sharing a fact about your life is not the same as sharing your experience of that fact right and you know I, I very much understand that to say that you were raped is not the same as to let somebody into your private emotional space 
and and I mean to bring it back to the essay as well like I I found the way that you are able to ring fence in this piece of writing feelings that are very unruly and complicated um to do with how we relate to people that we love um was so uh really comforting actually to me to read but I because you are able to state with an enormous amount of clarity things that are complex, but in the clarity, you make them sound um, much more accessible. I can imagine that that's challenging to some readers because you can be very direct, you know, and I think it's a great talent, but I, I can I can see how it would unsettle some people as well. Um, but is that something that you strive for that directness or is it something that has always been a natural um a natural direction in your writing i guess it's just natural because i mean to me it's a byproduct of wanting to be accurate and i think that i've underestimated perhaps how unusual it is to be direct especially for women. I, my husband once told me that he noticed pretty early on on meeting me that I'm more direct than most women. And I don't really, I'm not that aware of that, honestly. I mean, I've never really tried to examine other women in terms of how direct they are. I think I just, I, I, I have often a sense of, when I was young, I was very shy. And I wasn't a great talker. I still don't think I am. I still find it difficult to say things in conversation in a way that I think is clear and accurate. And so well, I think that I, my focus is on that so much that I'm concerned that that's what maybe seems really direct is because I'm trying really hard to say what I mean. And maybe I try harder than most people. I don't know. I wanted to go back to this idea of trauma and that question that, that, um, very mean writer asked you about <laughs> <laughs> about the trauma of of losing your cat because that that seems like such a central question in this essay and what we're talking about today in in a more wider context is complicated love or kind of inappropriate love and i thought so much of this essay was about the kinds of love that we're allowed to feel and the kinds of love that seem inappropriate to others, even if they seem very real to us. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. I, I, especially, I'm just so interested, why are people so desperate to police who we're allowed to love and, and how much we are allowed to love them? Yeah, that's. I think that's a good question. And I don't, I'm not sure I know the answer, but I guess I should first define what I mean by um, inappropriate love. Um, it can be, well, if, if living, if you lived um, 50 years ago for a woman to sexually love another woman was inappropriate. A lot of it is social. Um, it still seemed inappropriate for um, an unmarried person to pursue a married person. And, and unless, you know, the couple is having an open marriage, which is still not so common. Um, and even then it might seem to be seen to be a very bad idea. Which in which the third party is going to wind up feeling used and abused. Um, it can be considered inappropriate to love someone else's children too much. And I encountered that when I was involved with those kids. I mean, a lot of people gave me a lot of SHIT for that. Um, they, they thought that I was trying to compete with their mother. They thought that I was trying to um, be like a white savior. They thought that I was trying to raise their, ex that I was inadvertently, they didn't think I was deliberately doing this, but going to raise their expectations of what they could get out of life and they would, could only be disappointed. And I was just very uh, often bewildered and a little frightened by all of this. Frightened not for myself, but that, that maybe I was doing the wrong thing. And I still am not 100% clear about what I think of all of that, um, except that it, it seemed weird to me because I did trust that I had very strong feelings for these kids. I, I tend to trust my own feelings in terms of what the feeling itself is. But, you know, love is, a, 
funny thing. It, it, it's a really beautiful thing. I think it's one of the things that makes life worth living. But it, the efficacy of it and the rightness of it can really depend on what it's attached to. I did question sometimes if I it was attached to too much neediness on my part, that I was trying to get something more for me than for them at the same time. You know, I don't think you can have a loving relationship, which is just all about one person serving the other. I think it does have to be both people are getting something out of it, or how can that be very genuine? So, uh, yeah, I, it's 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 a confusing thing. And I remember reading uh, Anna Karenina for the first time. I didn't read it when I was young, when I was thinking about these things and there's a, a relatively small section of the book. I'm, I'm assuming most people know what it is. It's a great story of adultery, and which ends in terrible tragedy. And when the heroine Anna has left her husband and he's just, he's heartbroken and he's furious and his ego has been quite wounded. And in fact, at first it seems as if it's primarily an egotistical wound on his part. He's a quite unsympathetic character at first. And she is sick. She's dying, they think. And she's called for him to come see her. And he's going to see her. But he thinks, you know, unless she's there to beg his forgiveness, he's going to spurn her and, and be really mean. And he comes there prepared to be quite cold. He's very defended. And she sees him and she's running. She's feverish. She thinks she's dying. And she just pours out love for him. And so she's always loved him. She's just been crazy. This, she, it's not she. It's her other. This other woman in her who loves that other man, and that other woman scares her to death. And he just that it's him. She's always loved, and he just goes to pieces. He, he cries. He he holds her. She kisses him, and she she he, she just she's pregnant with the other man's child, and he decides he's going to take care of the child. He's going to forgive the other man, and he's just full of love. And then, though, in the days following that, he, he means to hold on to this. He means to, he tells her he forgives her. And as the days go on, though, he realizes the impossibility of holding on to this really pure moment. And he actually holds and tells the other man he forgives him. The other man is so shamed by this huge love that the husband is showing that he tries to kill himself. Um and for days, he maintains this position. And then gradually he sees, he begins to suspect the servants don't respect him. They see him as a cuckold. Anna, the wife, as she comes out of her fever, doesn't really remember what happened. She feels ashamed by his generosity. She doesn't quite believe it. Um, she becomes distant from him. Um, and he can't hold on to it because he realizes how the world is going to see him as a fool. And it's really powerful. I mean, I was so struck by that because it's like a ex perfect example of what I'm talking about. He really loves her. It's real, but society would deem it as inappropriate and undignified and humiliating. And so he cannot hold on to it. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And even my extreme love for the cat, I could see a lot of people thought I was really being crazy. My husband thought I was being crazy. He said, you're, you're like Captain Ahab. You're like <laughs> hanging, draping under clothes on the on the bushes, hoping it'll cause the cat to come back. Every animal in the neighborhood is going to be in love with you. Um, it's it's like you know where do you, but who do you when do you decide what's excessive and what isn't? It's it's a hard question, and I think the reason society is so determined to lay down these rules is love is a really powerful force that can be very disruptive. It's it's the message. I don't know how to pronounce this word. Miscegenation laws. Um, miscegenation, yeah. Where you know they really didn't want black men and white women or black women and white men to be falling in love and marrying because you know it would change the population quite a bit. It, and it's happening, and it. It even now scares, disturbs a lot of people. I think white people in America are going bonkers right now, partly because they're afraid they're not going to be in the majority. And and they're right. They probably won't be so at some point. And again, that's about sexuality and other things as well as love. But, you know, people, when they decide to raise children together, there's probably going to be love involved. And yeah. So that's why I think society really wants to police it because they don't want disruption like that. Do you think it's also about 
choices because if we have very limited choices on what it's acceptable to commit ourselves to i.e a man loves a woman and a woman loves a man and that's it and you know we can contain that and everyone can make a choice and stick with it whereas I think I was thinking listening to you like there's something when somebody expresses a love very directly for maybe their pet, maybe their child, or as you say, that another person's child, a godchild, as a niece, a nephew, whatever it might be. But something that's outside of the bounds of that very nuclear concept of family, it it throws a spanner in the works for some people who I, I just I feel like human beings can be so unadventurous and timid, but partly because everything else is surrounded by fear. And if we throw ourselves open to all the options and that maybe there is a way of tapping into this deep feeling of love through loving an animal or through loving an art form even, I don't know, like it's too unnerving for people because as you say, the force of love is so powerful and it can quite quickly become unruly. So if we're always policing one another's choices, we can also police our own choices kind of by default. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, I remember years ago someone saying to me that although many people idealize love, um, it, it isn't a comfortable place for a lot of people because it's so open. It's so, it's so vulnerable. Someone, uh, another person can hurt you quite a bit if you love them. So even if they don't mean to. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's not always an easy place to be. And also I think it's hard for people because it's changeable. You know, it's, it's not, all, it, it may last a, a lifetime, but it may not. Um, one person can step out of that um, framework where it makes sense anymore. And that's like, I, I still talk to those, they're not kids anymore, they're, they're adults. Um, the people I was calling um, Natalia and Caesar, I, I don't, at the last time I saw the girl was um, this past summer. I had dinner with her and one of her sons. She has kids now. And every now and then when we see each other speak, I can click back into that really intense, that that really free connection that I had. But other times it's really hard because we're in such different places socially and our, you know what happens in our daily lives that it's really hard to remember. And, and that's hard. It's hard. So much of this essay is, I think, about the pain that comes along with love. And that is, you know, the pain of loss, of course, which is something you you talk about in terms of um, Gatino the cat, but also your father. And also just the pain of, um, well, you have this amazing quote um, where you say, Human love is grossly flawed, and even when it isn't, people routinely misunderstand it, reject it, use it, or manipulate it. It is hard to protect a person you love from pain because people often choose pain. I am a person who often chooses pain. That really stuck with me. And it seems like maybe you've thought a lot about that relationship between love and pain. I remember there was, when I adopted the kitten in Italy, there was this guy there, another writer. And I don't know, I don't remember why he said this, but he said he would never, he wouldn't do that. He would not take his, his kitten home um, because it was just, it was just asking for heartbreak. And I just privately thought that was so ridiculous and cowardly. I just was like, he wouldn't rescue an an, a little animal that he actually found delightful because he was afraid his feelings might get hurt down the line. Wow, what a lame person. <laughs> 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 but look what happened to me <laughs> that I, I love the way life really makes you eat your words although I I don't think I would I don't think I would not do it I think I would be more careful when I once I got him home I think I was careless that's what I regret but but yeah of course being loving people can open you up to a lot of pain even when it's mutual do you think that it uh, resonates with people particularly now because we're experiencing this kind of collective global sense of loss really because of the pandemic. But I feel like this experience that we're all having, obviously not everyone's experience of the pandemic is the same, but we are for the first time in my life having a global a global experience that aligns 
us across kind of international borders, basically, um, in, a, in a particular feeling. And I feel like a lot of people have found that it's clarified their emotional um, ties with other people. A lot of people have been talking and writing about feeling a, a clarity in the love that they feel, or wanting to resurrect old relationships somehow and reach out to people that they maybe miss. Um, and I've, I felt when I read Lost Cat, it it felt like a it felt like a good essay for the moment in a in a funny way. I don't know if you feel that too. It's probably true. I hadn't really thought about that, um, but it makes sense certainly because um, it, it it does articulate grief, but also still a degree. Even though I, I quote myself saying at the end, I, I don't even know if love exists. I didn't really mean that even in the moment. I just kind of said it in a kind of a little fit, but, um, <laughs> but it, it does, there's, there's a really grief, but also a, a willingness to still hope and to go forward and to, to believe in connection. So yeah, I think it, it, it probably does make sense for right now. Mary, we had a billion other questions for you, but it's just been such a pleasure to talk to you about Lost Cat. And I do think it was immensely helpful for me to read right now. So I I hope that others find that too. And thank you so much for talking to us about it. You're welcome. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is complicated love. But first, I think it's worth talking about what we mean by complicated love. You could argue that all love is complicated, and there are so many directions we could take this. But today, inspired by Mary Gateskill's Lost Cat, we want to talk about the kind of love that feels real, but is viewed by society or the structures we live in as too much or misplaced or inappropriate, and how that kind of love is explored in literature. So why don't we start? Why is complicated love such good material for fiction? Because there were a wealth of examples that we thought of today, weren't there? Yeah. I mean, aside from the fact that it's like sticky and icky and a good story, I think obstacles of complicated love make for a good plot, right? Um, It's a good antagonist in a story to have an impediment or some kind of reason why. And And I think when you have characters who are reacting against particularly external um, repressions that make their love more complicated or thwarted. You also, a writer gets the opportunity to critique the society that contains those structures, you know? Um, And that can be incredibly rich territory as well for stories. What about you? What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's also that we have a deep human need to read about love and to experience love. And I love books about love. And love is complicated. And I think there is something comforting about being able to read about how love is complicated for other people too. I mean, it was one of the things I really loved about Mary Gateskill's essay was how it acknowledged the difficulty of love even alongside being extremely hopeful about it. Yeah, absolutely. But don't you think it's one of the strange paradoxes of our culture that we have a society that like in a lot of very mainstream ways exalts incredibly simplistic, not terribly helpful love stories. And then the ones that are sort of more complex and more kind of gnarly, I think are always the more rewarding because they're much more close to reality, right? Like if you are a living, loving person, you are never going to have a clean slate with your experience of loving because like you say, it's always complicated, whether we're talking romantic love or filial love or love of friends or love of lovers, right? It's all animals even as in Mary's book, anything that where you create um, a reciprocal intimacy, I suppose, with another person. Yeah. And I guess you could argue that the idealized stories about love, which do often have to contain obstacles. You know, if you think about the structure of the rom-com, even the rom-com is about two people who can't be together for whatever reason or don't realize that they can be together and then sort of ends in them getting together. And there's a reason why those things are always the beginning of love and not the middle of love. Right. I mean, that I love rom-coms, too, you know, and I, I see these as 
two kind of different things. I I really do see rom-coms as escapism. Not to say that they can't be realistic in some ways, but I'm looking to those not because I want an accurate portrayal of like the pain contained in love. I kind of just want to see a nice love story. But I also love reading things like The Great Gatsby or Lost Cat that are a little more complex. And before we move into those complexities, I think it's also worth saying that the word complicated love or inappropriate love I don't think we're talking here about truly inappropriate love, something so one-sided or unbalanced that it tips into rape or abuse. And I think you could reasonably argue that that's not love at all anyway, but it is something that exists in literature and it's something I don't we're not really going to address today. I mean, Lolita I think is a is the prime example of a, of a book that kind of looks at that question. Yeah, it does, but I think it's it, we're dwelling somewhere else basically. Like yeah. we're looking at um, love that's considered too much maybe, but that's not a, like a negative imposition on somebody on somebody yes. else. I mean, I was just looking at my notes and I've got Ahab and Moby and Moby Dick, big story of unrequited whale love, complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Quite pleased with that. <laughs> do, you think that, do you think that Moby Dick is a big story of unrequited whale love? Oh, completely. I think Moby Dick is actually an incredibly good example of a plot that is about complicated love because I think what Ahab feels for that whale which is a relationship that is totally one-sided and becomes symbolic of so many other things I think it's incredibly complicated and it's the idea of love as quest as well um, and obsession and yeah I think I, I would say that's a tip-top story of, of complicated love. Okay, I'm into it. I haven't read Moby Dick, so I can't, I can't agree or disagree. I mean, listen, it's very long. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't we get into the different kinds of complicated love and how they manifest in literature? So maybe that's an example of the kind of love we were talking about a little bit with Mary, love that seems kind of too much that doesn't fit into the bounds of what is expected. Other good examples of that might be say Heathcliff and Kathy in Wuthering Heights, you know, the obsessiveness of their love that that a society can't understand, really. Yeah, I made me think of I Love Dick by Chris Krause, obviously, yes. which is a story yeah. all about that, like misplaced affection and attention and then the kind of self-fueling obsession of romantic obsession and how really like who's that kind of love serving, you know? It's giving you something to do, I think, half the time when, when there's a romantic obsession that's not res- responded to necessarily. Um, and that's yeah, so or much even if it is about well yeah exactly um and then I was thinking also of the first bad man by Miranda July which again is another book that explores romantic obsession and the kind of uh fantasy like romantic obsession can be so fertile for our imaginations right somebody that we get a glimpse of but they never become real to us so we don't have to get bogged down in like the nitty-gritty intimacy of their true self which will always be disappointing because human beings are so much more complicated than a fantasy allows, right? And I, I'm really into literature that explores that because I think it's one of the kind of, I don't know, central energizing forces of humanity, right? Like how do you marry the fantasy of the people that you desire or love or cherish with the reality of them being just as mucky and complicated as you? <laughs> it's yeah. complicated. Yeah, I, and then I think another kind of complicated love, of course, is love that is forbidden for whatever reason, whether it's state, whether it's religion, whether it's kind of social mores. So you have Romeo and Juliet, of course, which is the classic, you know, two lovers who want to be together who can't be together. Um, and and that is a, a classic plot. Um, there's there's also, you know, I, I think there are a lot of really wonderful stories in literature about gay love, which is often about overcoming obstacles in society simply because Still, we exist in a time where a man being with another man or a woman being with another woman is unacceptable to some people and and to society. So Giovanni's Room, which I always talk about by James Baldwin, Brokeback Mountain by Annie Prue, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette Winterson, which is, of course, a memoir. Though I think there's a valid point to be made about not just celebrating gay romance that is tragic. Completely. Um, And I think a lot of critics have made that point as well. I was going to say the other one, again, one that I always talk about, but The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson, where the complicated dynamic in that love is the changing relationship with gender that her partner Harry has and how they have to navigate 
what their love means separate from fixed gender identities necessarily. And I think it's such a wonderful exploration of what happens when you take romantic love away from those ideas. And can you have it as some kind of pure, almost idealized connection and the questions that that brings up and then of course the questions of of starting a family together as well like that book is is wonderful about all of those themes Mm. and then of course there is extramarital affairs which is a favorite subject of literature there's some kind of quote that I should have looked up about how all novels are either about adultery or something else war (laughs) it's not true (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, but The End of the Affair, Lady Chatterley's Lover, Paolo and Francesca from Dante's Inferno, you know, the list goes on. And there is something, maybe some kind of wish fulfillment or fascination with reading about people who stray beyond their marriages. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. if you think about it in a kind of Freudian frame, it's it's a safe place to explore things that you wouldn't, transgressions that you wouldn't ever actually want to commit yourself. But I, I think also we're just prurient, you know, we're nosy. Yeah. It's gossip, yes. isn't it? <laughs> Basically. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> I mean, that's what I love, the novel A Suitable Boy by Vikram Sait, which is an extraordinary novel in many ways. But it is also a bit like War and Peace, a novel about gossip in a way, you know, there's a way into it, which is just, you know, complicated family narratives where there are lots of people getting together and breaking up and transgressing certain boundaries and it's fascinating and it's exciting, but it's kind of exciting also because it's like, oh, I know all these things about all these people. <laughs> and as yeah. a reader, you get a sense of a sense of control and a sense of power that you do not have access to when you're the one who's actually experiencing love, basically. I think that is such a great point. And Thank it is about you. peering. <laughs> I, lo- I love the idea of gossip, right? It is about peering into other people's lives. And just a, a couple of other things that I was thinking about in terms of complicated love. First of all, love that is complicated because of circumstances. And one of the books that I kept thinking about when I was thinking about this theme was The Remains of the Day by Ishiguro, which at its heart really is about a thwarted romance that is completely prevented by Stevens the butler's sense of decorum and moral duty. Um, Mm. This is a man who has shut himself off from love. And it's incredibly tragic for that reason in its its own quiet way. Well, you know who else that makes me think of is Ebenezer Scrooge from Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Another character who basically has shut himself off from the warmth of human kindness because the fear of loss becomes too much. And I do think that that is a really interesting territory for literature to explore because anyone who's felt damaged by rejection or the loss of a relationship, which again is most people, knows that that feeling of rawness and fear, it you can get stuck in it. And it's tragic and, and, and can feel very hopeless. And I think that stories that look at that human phenomenon of closing doors, and then the struggle to open them again is really rich territory for us to get into as well. Love is incredibly vulnerable. Loving anything or anyone is vulnerable. And you see what these characters lose in, in the stories that you're discussing, but also why they, why this is a decision that so many people make to shut themselves off from feeling because it's, it's painful. Yeah. And risky, like you said. It's complicated, isn't it? <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> How many times have we said the word complicated in this uh, show so many far? Many times, many times. <laughs> Well, shall we recommend some books about complicated love? We will, but you know, you've ruined mine already by telling everyone what it was in the intro. Um, (laughs) But yes, I'm going to recommend The Pisces by Melissa Broder, which is really a book about how our need for love in itself can be complicated. And before we even bring another person into the picture. So for example, the protagonist Lucy at one point asks, who was I if I wasn't trying to make someone love me? which just sets the tone for this book about how love itself can become an addiction and the ways that we can seek to fill our internal voids with feelings for other people. In this case, a mysterious merman named Theo, who at first seems like he's going to fulfill all of Lucy's fantasies about love, which are totally excessive and essentially looking for someone to take her away from herself. Um, But then there's also, the other reason I thought of this was because there's a dog who she has a kind of complicated love for foxhound called Dominic who she hopes might save her from herself but you know if your relationship with love itself is complicated anything that comes through that portal is sure to be complicated too and spoiler alert things don't end that well for Dominic 
Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> I really need to read that book. You're going to love it. I think it will be, have it as a Christmas treat, you know? It's just a, a great read. Yeah, and every time you talk about it, I'm like, ooh, that, that's a subject that interests me. That sounds like something I like in fiction. So, I, I, yeah, I just need to do it. Well, mine is Middlemarch. You shock me. <laughs> the reason why you can talk about almost any theme and bring up Middlemarch is because Middlemarch is a novel that contains multitudes. And, and it was kind of set up to, to be that, right? It was, a, it was a book about a small town, but it was also a book about the whole world. And that's the ambition. And the ambition is somehow realized by the genius that is George Eliot. But in this context, I just wanted to talk about Dorothea Casabon and Will Ladislaw. Um, and the kind of love triangle that the three of them have, because it's so complicated. And there are so many different aspects of of some of the things that we've been talking about that come up in terms of of their relationships with each other. So, you know, Dorothea marries Casabon because she thinks it will be a good thing to do. And she wants to help him write this never ending book that he's constructing called The Key to All Mythologies. But of course, it's a terrible match. Their marriage is an utter disaster. She does not love him. He does. He kind of feels affectionate towards her, but he resents her vigor and youth. And it's it's just totally inappropriate and it's complicated. And I think it, again, talking about like the fantasy versus the reality, what we think will be good for us versus the reality of the situations in which we put ourselves into, especially in the structures of marriage that are kind of about love, but they're about so many other things. Um, and I think that's, that's an element of complicated love, too, is that it's never just a love between two people. It's structures, it's marriage, it's society, it's all of these Contrast. other things. Yes, exactly. But then when she does have a passionate attachment to someone else, Caspon's cousin, Will Ladislaw, the union is, is technically forbidden, of course, because they are married. But also then Caspon forbids it after his death by putting a clause in his will that if they marry, she'll lose her inheritance, which I think is just the most wonderful and juiciest plot point and says so much about spite and jealousy and love. And so I just think George Eliot understood deeply the complications of love in, in this novel and in the rest of her fiction as well. I'm yet to read a Middlemarch. Well, I think you should read it, but no pressure. Yeah, well, I'll get to it one day. It sounds really good. It's I just it's like a slog, though. That's the thing. There's yeah. something about it where it, it was not that fun for me to read when I read it, and then I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since I read it. Mm, interesting, really interesting. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and also Mary Gateskill to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? I would love to. So I'm already so fed up with winter, which obviously bodes well considering we're still only in October, that I decided to go back to a book that would transport me somewhere hot, basically. Um, and I went back to this sunbaked story by Deborah Levy called Hot Milk, which is just such a great novel. And I loved it even more this time than when I first read it. I think that there's something about Levy's fiction that's so tightly packed with symbolism and it tends to have an incredibly rich and connected internal logic. And I find that whenever I go back to her work, I discover more layers because she's packed it all in so tightly. And this novel, this is the story of Sophia and her mother Rose, who have decamped temporarily to southern Spain. Um, so that Rose can be treated at the experimental clinic of this quite mysterious Dr. Gomez, who may or may not be a quack, um, for her intermittent paralysis. And it's about the codependency and control that can thrive between parents and children and ask questions about the meaning of emancipation. How do we interrupt those occasionally suffocating relationships without severing them completely? Um, and it's strung together with this amazing set of recurring motifs that play with language and meaning. So for example, the Medusa is one of the kind of uh, organizing principles. Medusa is Spanish for jellyfish. And Sophia discovers that the beaches are covered with jellyfish and she gets stung. But then there's also obviously the myth of Medusa, the snake-haired woman who can turn people to stone with a glance, which feels like a perfect 
reference for this story that's about paralysis, paralysis for the body, but also paralysis of a person's entire life because Sophia is at a place in her mid-20s where she's quite lost. So it's just this like incredibly rewarding writing to read because you, as you go, you pick up on deeper, deeper layers of meaning. And I basically, I've been thinking the whole time of reading it this time, how desperately I would love Pedro Amadova to make a film of it. I think it would be like the thing to make winter bearable for me. So if anyone knows any bigwigs out there, can you get this to Pedro, please? <laughs> I love hot milk too. And that is such a good idea. Isn't it? <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. yeah. Rossi De Palma in the lead role. That's all I want. Yeah. Mary, could we have your book recommendation, please? Um, yeah. I wanted to recommend Snow by Oran Pamuk, which was published in 2004. Um, it's it's about a lot. It's, a, it's such a complex book. I, I hate to even try to describe it. But it's basically about a poet, Turkish poet, living in exile in Germany who returns to a small village in Turkey because of a complicated scandal involving Islamic girls committing suicide, supposedly because they're being told they can't wear their headscarves in school. And that's plausible. They're, they're, they're pissed about that. But they're also, there's, there's an awful lot of other things going on in their lives, which could cause despair. And he's supposedly there to cover it for a German paper, but he also wants to connect with this very beautiful woman from his past, Gosh, I'm trying to. It, the book is so beautiful. I just I don't know how to do it justice. Really, it's it's remarkable because it's it's a look at so many different kinds of people, people we might well, fundamentalists. It's, it, there's characters who are really fundamentalists, and some of them are extremely rigid and scary, and others of them are just really ardent people who are who are quite complex in reality. People just trying to get by, just, you know, people selling, working at coffee shops and selling food, power mongers of every description, including this kind of crazy vaudevillian acting couple. Um, this one guy whose life has been ruined because he wanted to play Ataturk and, and, in a movie and was disgraced and was not able to play Ataturk and his lewd belly dancing wife. And they get connected with these political nuts and wind up putting on this huge spectacle on the on the stage um which is just both hilarious and horrific and as a chapter um iconoclasts social climbers manipulators uh, ambitious naives and just a lot of outraged poor people who just basically want to be heard and part of what i love about it is the way he and, and along with the huge cast of varying kinds of people, the, the energies of the book can go from very dark to just really ridiculous, um, to just ordinary life, to romantic love, to fool, just utter foolishness. It's, it's also, it's very, there's a lot of earnestness plus just human ridiculousness. And it's, it's really, it's, it's does not suffer from the American fear of emotion. The characters are just really will just spill their guts to people in ways that are very natural. Like it, you, you don't think, oh, this is too much or too, they, it's very just how you can imagine people speaking in that situation. And it has, I mean, because of when it, it, it he started writing it before 9-11, but it has, because of the subject matter, something of that topical feel. And you, you when you realize, when you read it, that if the events that take place in the book were described by a reporter going to this place and trying to just find out what happened. Even if it was in-depth, excellent reporting, it would really tell you nothing about the humans involved or mm -hmm. the society that they live in compared to what this novel does. I really can't recommend it too much. It's just really one of the best contemporary novels I've ever read. Wow. I haven't read any of his stuff and I love the the kind of pitch you made for it. That was also a pitch about what fiction can do. Yeah. <laughs> so my recommendation is neither obscure nor new, but I would like to give a big recommendation to Beloved by Toni Morrison, which I finally read. Um, I, I think I'd read a little bit of it when I was a high schooler, but must have put it down because I couldn't remember anything about it. And obviously just didn't really understand it at the time, but so much has been said about Toni Morrison's writing and it is truly masterful. I mean, it's it's amazing writing. It's not a book that suffers from the American fear of emotion either. It's incredibly 
visceral and humane and emotional. And not only that, I mean, it's an incredibly carefully structured plot that is actually, it's kind of a page turner. You know, you don't, there's a lot of mysteries and you don't really know what happened. And the book kind of reveals the past um, in a way that is incredibly kind of suspenseful, but also works perfectly within the structure of the novel. So it, it doesn't feel kind of cheap in that way. And I really appreciated that and kind of didn't expect it in terms of the ways that people talk about Toni Morrison and the ways that they talk about this novel in particular. And I also just really loved its relationship with the supernatural. We talked in our last show with Daisy Johnson about how difficult it is to get the balance right with magical realism. But the more fantastical elements of this novel feel utterly and naturally part of its own world. It's about a former slave living with her daughter in Ohio and this kind of mysterious figure called Beloved who just shows up on her doorsteps and and, and begins living with her. And through the novel, we learn about their relationship together in this house, but also the, the past of the mother on a slave plantation and her escape. And it's also, I mean in the way that the best novels are. It's such a tightly constructed and compact story that is very much its own story, but it's also just so much bigger than the story it tells. It's about America. It's about slavery. It's about the Black experience. It's about the echoes of trauma, but in a way that never sacrifices the the substance in the storytelling itself. So yeah, I, I really loved it. And you know, it's not a new thing to say that Beloved by Toni Morrison is a great novel, but I think it's a great novel. Yeah, absolutely. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Mary Gateskill, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram and get in touch with us on email litfriction at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Also, if you have a spare minute, please rate and review us wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Clit with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.